Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and teachers everywhere in the world. My name is Paul Essa. I am a PhD student at Yale University. And I'm Rosie Candethel, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. Our esteemed co-hosts, the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren and Tim McNinch, are off this week. But fear not, friends, we have got you covered. Tips and insights are coming right up for the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, July 9th, 2023. Paul, it's your turn at the mic. What's up? <laughs> uh, the wind of Pentecost is still blowing and still hoovering around here, and I can feel it already. Uh, <laughs> there are several OT passages for this week, actually. There's the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through 13, and two other prophetic passages from Zechariah and, I think, Isaiah. Uh, I, I, I was particularly very excited uh, to read that the Song of Songs in Zechariah is featured for this week as alternative passages because mm. they don't often get featured, um, you know, very often in church, right? Um, mm. But as you, Rosie, have brilliantly suggested in the last few episodes, uh, sticking to the semi-continuous first readings of the year, Estran has a lot of thematic benefits, um, even for understanding and appreciation of the gospel readings that is attached to it. So all that to, stay, to say that I am sticking with Genesis 24, which is the love story of Isaac and Rebecca. Mm. Uh, fun fact about me, I have watched all of the... <laughs> The Married at First Sight, Married at First Sight show on on Prime, you know, Amazon Prime. Huh. Uh, and somehow this text reads to me as one of the features on, on those episodes. Have you seen any of that, Rosie? I haven't, but now that you mention it, it's come up on my feed and I think <laughs> I might give it a try. It's like, it's Married at First Sight, folks. It'll help you pick up on this yeah. love story here. <laughs> but Paul, it sounds like you are interested in zooming in on the motif of love between Isaac and Rebecca. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, that would be fun, but maybe not. Um, I mean, partly yes, because I'm going <laughs> to talk about marriage at some point. But I think this passage very well balances happy, relaxing topics such as love with some other really dense topics. Uh, and by that, I mean topics such as travel, patriarchy, you know, cultural and ethnic mixing, uh, the peculiarity of God's guidance, even in selecting a life partner, and so on and so forth. Uh, all these are important. And even if we do not cover all of this in, in our episode for today, I think preachers should still consider naming some of those uh, in their sermons. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up all the all the topics that are possible here, but would you also say something about the incredible length of this reading? <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that is really striking. Uh, and thank you for bringing that up, Rosie. I think it is very important to note that the RCL has us reading a select portion of a 67 verse long passage. Genesis 21, 24 actually, is the longest chapter in, in the book of Genesis. So <laughs> it is unique, not only in the story that it tells, but the nature of the text itself. Now, I do not know if our usual first reading advice to include the entire passage will work very well here since the passage is outrageously long. Yet it, it's repetitive nature, especially in Hebrew. If you read it in Hebrew, the same words appear over and over mm. and over and it gets boring at some point. But that also allows for some creativity and a decent amount of selectivity. So I guess my next advice to preachers is to obviously pay attention to the length, note how repetitive it is, and try to be creative. 
I would stick to the portions that the RC has selected for us and probably maybe go back a few verses if I were preaching this just to give some background and context. Or if I need to include everything, then I'm going to assign the whole chapter along with some Bible project video or something like that to congregants so that they read it ahead of time before they come to church. I mean, we do that in class, so why can't we not assign readings before church, you know? So preachers put on your professor hat there and assign some homework. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's get to the text itself. Are there things that stood out to you this week that preachers and teachers should be aware of? Awesome. Yeah, Um, there are actually a few things that I'm thinking about. Uh, The first thing is the fact that this passage is presented as a continuation of other earlier passages in Genesis. We have done Genesis 12, Genesis 18, Genesis 21, Genesis 22. You know, preachers go back and listen to all of that. But in all of these uh, chapters, uh, you know, the, the theme of relocation or movement from one place to another, you know, features as one of the core themes. And for me, it is really, really very fascinating. In chapter 12, as we have said in the chapter 12 episode, Abraham is, ca- is called to halach, right? To lech lecha from his father's house to a new land. And Tim, in our previous episode, I think Rosie, you have done that as well, uh, helps us to understand how the verb halak here reinforces the divine command to go out of a place to another, but also going with the sense of leaving something behind to become a foreigner elsewhere. Likewise, in uh, 18, chapter 18, Abraham is himself receiving foreign guests who seem to have traveled far uh, from a place. And in that passage, we see how Abraham Sarah's hospitality towards these guests opens up the possibility of Sarah having a child. And that's where Isaac is promised. Uh, There in Genesis 18, we also see the theme of travel feature very prominently. And in that case, it's not just Abraham, it's not Abraham traveling, but it is his guests traveling to him, right? And later on in Genesis 21, Hagar or Hagar and Ishmael, uh, who are foreigners in Israel, are expelled out of their own home and left wandering in the wilderness. The word for expel there is garash, which sounds quite similar to one of the other words for exile. Exile is another travel word that features a lot in the Hebrew Bible, gela or gala. They both begin with the gimel sound, like mm. g right? Very similar. And here in Genesis 24, the motif of travel again shows up. Um, Here, a servant is sent to journey in search for a wife for Isaac, right? So aside from the story itself, focusing mostly on travel scenes, the word yalach, which is to go, used here, evokes similar motifs such as halach or gala or even garash in earlier passages. And that's one of the most interesting things for me so far. Hmm. Yeah, so you're highlighting this um, kind of longstanding tradition in the Hebrew Bible of the sojourn, uh, the movement of people's migration, and even land and foreign land, right? Which occupies a good bit of the stories throughout the Hebrew Bible. So even as the story of Abraham and his descendants unfold throughout Genesis, these themes of migration and land come up repeatedly. Uh, with the exodus from Egypt as a center, right? So outside the Pentateuch, the rest of the historical books feature several relocations as Israel, -hmm. Israel, the nation of Israel, interacts with their ancient Near Eastern neighbors 
until mm-hmm. the biggest of them all, the Babylonian exile, emerges after the era of the prophets. So it's pretty safe to say that the story of the Israelites is a story of migration and return. Yeah. Yep, very right. Especially for me, you know, rereading the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible in the last few years, I'm stunned by how land and foreign land too repeats very often, right? In 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 in, cre- in Genesis one, land is created. In Genesis twelve, it is promised to Abraham and his offspring, um, and they occupy it throughout the Book of Exodus, um, and even beyond, like into the historical books. There are records of wars, and you know most of these wars are over land. People are fighting over land, and the exile, which takes a good bit of the second half of the Hebrew Bible, is partly about land, right? And like you, I think understanding how land works in the Hebrew Bible enhances one's understanding of most of the Hebrew Bible, if not all. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I really resonate with what you're picking up here on that on that theme of movement. Um, in all of these texts as kind of a, an mm-hmm. organizing principle. But I'm still kind of hoping that we're going to get to the romance part that you promised <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, with Mary at <laughs> yeah. first sight. So you had a few other That's thoughts right. about yeah. Isaac and Rebecca, right? <laughs> so when yeah, are we going to get to the love part? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so something should be said about the theme of marriage, of course, uh, especially how marriage functions here. First of all, uh, Marriage here is arranged marriage, mm. right? That I'm sure to many of our contemporary minds is inconceivable. You know, we wonder how, how could a partner be arranged for, for someone, you know, without you seeing the pressing or you interacting with the pressing or you dating the pressing. But here we have it. It exists. You know, it happens. <laughs> and in part of my own culture, I think it does. It still, it still does. And arguably, it is the best for some couples. Hey, my parents um, were arranged. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you see, it's not mm-hmm. too far from Absolutely. us after all. <laughs> uh, this, the second thing that I find here is the insistence on a non-Canaanite wife for Isaac. I think that raised a lot of thoughts and questions. And the biggest of them is why. Why is Isaac marrying from his father's household so important that the seven had to be bound by oath to obey? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good question to explore. Because this is not the first time we are seeing this sort of thing happen in the Hebrew Bible. It repeats again in Genesis 27, which is a later verse, and in 28, where Jacob and Esau are explicitly commanded not to marry foreign women. Of course, they both disobeyed that and took that woman, you know, and married them. But later on in Deuteronomy 7, through um, I think from 1 through 7, interactions with foreigners and foreign women is enshrined into law, mm-hmm. where just before they inherit the promised land, Moses says to them, this is how you must deal with them. Break down their altars, smash their p- p- pillars, hew down their sacred poles, burn their idols with fire, for you are a people, a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth to be his people, his treasured possession you know, speech ends. Mm. This belief that the Israelites are holy people, chosen and separated, treasured people, and that they are mixing with non-Israelites will corrupt their God-given sacred identities also invoked by Ezra, you mm. know, several chapters and several mm-hmm. books later on. That's after the exile. Then in Ezra chapter 9, 
remnants of, of, of Israel, those who returned, are reported to have disobeyed the Deuteronomic law in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 through 7. And they do, they do that by mixing themselves through marriage with the peoples of the land. Therefore, for Ezra, the mixing, uh, their mixing is a corruption of the holy seed. This is what Ezra refers to as the holy seed you know, embedded within them. And all of that is like really, really interesting stuff. But I guess what I'm getting to here is that this prohibition we see in Genesis 24 uh, has something to do with maintaining cultural purity and conserving or in some, in some way preserving an inheritance within a family. You know, I, I think that Abraham has something or had something uh, to protect, which is the covenant, and for him, merging into other families through marriage would challenge his or their identity or understanding of who qualifies to benefit from that covenant or, you know, who doesn't. I think something that you're putting your finger on here, too, is that there's a kind of a, a long tension here in Genesis and then other parts of the of the Bible where uh, there is quite a bit of mixing that we see. So Moses marries a Midianite. You know, we see all kinds of yeah. um, significant examples of intermarriage. And then we see yeah. these other places where the, there are these strong prohibitions, right? So I think yeah. you're pointing at a, a long tension um, in in how Israel considers its alliances, marriages, like, so there's a, a, a lot to say, um, yeah, but to right. also say that it's not clear, um, you know, what's actually yeah. allowed or not. Right. So Esther's a major example my dissertations, I mean, she's marrying right. a Persian yeah. King and remains mm -hmm. a Jewish heroine. Right. So anyway, mm -hmm. there's a, there's, there's some exploring here that you're inviting us to do mm -hmm. about this dynamic of the us versus them, them that mm -hmm. underlines mm -hmm marriage, right? So, and preachers might consider ways in which this remains a fact that we too look inward with concern about what we lose about ourselves and also what we gain in intermingling, mm -hmm. in marrying with others who are not like us. Exactly. Uh, I would like to offer a word of caution here because I remember a long time ago in youth group, we were discussing this passage and somebody asked me, oh, so does that mean that the Bible says we should not marry people of other race and ethnicity mm. or cultures? I'm like, ah, okay, let's just talk about this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> First, I think that, you know, this is a command for a people at a specified time and context and not a timeless command that binds all humans at all places. And I think that, in fact, we should not read the Hebrew Bible that way at all, not to pick like a command or something or a phenomenon that happens at a particular place in time and apply it to all of us humans. Like That's the good interpretive approach and methods to take. The second thing that I want to highlight is that, and I think you started going there, Rosie, is that this command does not go even unchallenged within the Bible mm -hmm. itself, right? People did not always respond with obedience. And you mentioned the, the example of Esther. Take another example like Ruth, mm -hmm. you know. Intermarriages in both Esther and Ruth reads to me as a, both a resistance in a reimagination of Israelite, you know, ancient Israelite theology. Resistance in the sense that it pushes back on the prohibition of cultural mixing and inter intermarriages enacted in Deuteronomy 7, uh, and also provides a much more nuanced alternative where in some contexts such as exile, cultural mixing and intermarriages is really unavoidable. It's just 
bound to happen because we are not in our own home, you know? Right. And there's something to praise about this, right? I mean, to celebrate that uh, the Bible contains a message of cultural specificity, of national specificity, but it also uh, has a strain of universalism, that it is um, that it is a covenant that's not only held in specificity with Israel and God, but one that blesses mm-hmm. all nations, right? And is for all people. So the, the both the us and the them in relationship, you know, is, is something that I think Mm -hmm. you're putting your finger on in this story and negotiating those lines. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot to say there. Right. And then I think you're going to be going toward how does God play into all of this, right? Uh, another interesting thing that I found here, which I, you know, I couldn't just resist, but to bring up, bring up here, especially in at this time, you know, during the summer when most people are transitioning from one thing to the other, and you know, thinking about like job prospects and thinking about you know heavy decisions that are similar to making a decision about who you want to spend the rest of your life, choosing a life partner. There's this thing about divine guidance and prayer in here, right? The the servant who is sent, you know, to go into the deep and find a partner for Isaac, you know, knows how difficult this task is and, you know, begins with a prayer, right? Um, And makes, you know, sets certain parameters as to like, who might fit into that parameter, asking God for success and guidance through this process. And I think that, uh, you know, at, at a particular time as this, it will be important for preachers to, you know, remind folks and remind their congregants that, you know, prayer is important and especially for, for guidance uh, at a time when like uncertainty and um, expectation and hope, you know, is difficult to hold on to. Right. Yeah. So that's the other thing that I wanted to highlight. I think that's a, a lovely point to remind us of too, is that the servant relies uh, in that kind of, um, spotlight on prayer in that moment right before he tries to approach Rebecca like he asks for God to help uh, and there's there's um, just a simple but also really important reminder of the place of prayer in any important venture right so um, I think that's a great place to maybe leave our listeners um, and thank you for your work on this passage Paul my pleasure Friends, we hope you found something helpful in our discussion today. Remember, you can find an episode on just about every passage in the lectionary by using the search box on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And while you're there, take a look at our merchandise or make a donation to help keep the podcast going. And a big thank you to everyone who's already donated. We are grateful for your support. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found us helpful, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you may find us. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candifal. And I am Paul Essa. Have a great week.